Well, hello, everybody. So glad that you've joined us wherever you are. And I want to say a special welcome to those of you who are parents, uh, those of you who are, who are students, uh, those of you who are teachers or school administrators. I know this week has been nuts as you're trying to navigate uh, whatever this is and, and trying to figure it out. And I just want you to know we love you. We're praying for you and confident that God is present with you and will help you navigate this craziness. Um, today, uh, we are continuing our series called The Secret Sauce, uh, which is about the key components that make our relationships what God wants them to be, what we were created to experience. And last week, we talked about how to take relationships deeper. If you missed that, watch it. Um, go online and, and you can watch that service or message. And uh, this next week, we're going to be talking uh, next week. We're going to be talking about having hard conversations that work. And this week is a little bit different because we're going to focus on a practice, uh, a spiritual practice, really a relational practice that is very simple. Anybody can do it. Doesn't mean it's easy always, but it's simple. But it's also deeply profound, meaning everybody can do it if we do it certainly differently than we normally do it. We'll talk about it that today. Um, It can change every relationship. It can change every marriage, every home, every neighborhood, even our culture and our country in a way that's really needed right now. But because it is so simple, when you start to get wind of what it is that we're talking about, you're going to be tempted once you realize, oh, that's what we're talking about, to shift over to Netflix or see what's happening in the NBA bubble or something like that. Don't do that. Hang with me because I'm going to call us, challenge us to do something that we're not doing right now. That will be deeply impactful for us for the fall and really for the rest of our lives and not just for us, but our community. So hang with me, because today we're talking about this uh, practice. That's why we have a table, the practice of table fellowship, intentional table fellowship. And it's something that in our culture we've sort of losing the art of, but in biblical and throughout the Bible is a key Not just nice thing to do, but an imperative, a spiritual discipline. Uh, The way God set up his his people in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel, the Jewish people leading up to the Messiah, Jesus, that would come. uh, The way he set up the nation in the Old Testament era was he built their calendar around seven feasts that happened throughout the year. These week-long experiences, table fellowship. Uh, When they had weddings in the Old Testament, it was built around these feasts that didn't go on for an hour. It went on for days often. Every week uh, in the Old Testament setup was built around the Sabbath. And there was a special Shabbat Sabbath meal that everybody participated in. Every few years, uh, they got set it up this way. This is crazy to think about. But told the nation to do this big week-long feast. This big party where they took 10% of the nation's GDP. I don't know what that would mean for America. 10% of our GDP, I'd be crazy. But they blew it all on this big party. And everybody came. Those on the left, those on the right, those who were rich, those who were poor, those who were this or that. It didn't matter. Everybody welcome and round the table. And that's what God wanted to help shape the kind of culture and the kind of community that he wanted for his people. And when Jesus came on the planet, he honored all of that. He did all of those feasts. And one thing you see with Jesus, too, is that he never said no to a dinner invitation. 
He was invited to lots of dinner parties and he never said no, even when it was what other people would consider the wrong kind of people, even when it was people that that would consider him an enemy. He always said yes. He everybody was welcome around his table. And when you look at how Jesus was with the disciples, it was often around table fellowship The most memorable moments. It was a priority for him. Like the Last Supper we have just before his crucifixion and then resurrection. And at the Last Supper, he institutes what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, which the early church did not just have a little cracker and juice. They did it around a whole meal, the agape feast that they did all the time as a church. When Jesus returns one day and we're zipped up to heaven, those of us who know Jesus, the first thing that will happen In Revelation, it's called the Wedding Supper of the Lamb. It'll be this big, huge table where everybody's got a seat, everybody welcome, because that practice is a picture of what God is up to. He's at the head of the table. There's a seat for everybody, and he calls us as his people to prepare the table and invite the guests. And that's why the early church, they got that. And one of the things you see in the early church is they made a priority out of this. We tend to kind of blow it off when you read through the scriptures, but it was a a significant practice for them, a significant discipline for them. Like this passage in Acts chapter two, which describes the the earliest church, the early days of the church. And imagine as you read, as I read this passage, what it would be like to be part of this, because it would have been awesome. They devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. That was one practice and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, which is eating together and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. It's easy to think, well, man, the early church, they were devoted to fellowship like groups. They were devoted to worship in the temple courts. They were devoted to uh, the apostles teaching and, you know, like preaching and all that. That's great. And to just kind of blow off the other part. But it's actually the one mentioned twice. That they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. All these different people together was actually a powerful thing, as we're going to see, for the early church to do. And it's an incredible picture of what God is up to. And when I think about the early church and table fellowship, it makes me think about my grandmother's table. Uh, My granddad was a pastor And so my grandmother, a pastor's wife, he was also uh, in Kentucky. He was the chaplain of the state police and he was also a chaplain of a hospital. And he had a huge heart for people. And so throughout his day, he would just collect all kinds of people and who were going through crazy circumstances often. And he would invite them to his house. And my grandmother was just always ready. And she never knew if people were going to just come for dinner, if they were going to spend the night, if they were going to spend a week or spend years. She had no idea. And so every time she was cooking dinner, she just always knew she had to cook way more than their family needed because she had no idea who would show up. And that was especially true on Sunday after church. You just never knew who would come and how many would be invited. But it was always amazing. And as a little kid, I have these great memories of being at my grandmother's table. For one, she was an amazing cook. Her fried chicken... Just unbelievable. Um, she made chicken and dumplings, really more like noodles. They were like, but you think of it more like chicken and dumplings. 
They were so good. I was surprised Jesus didn't come back just to eat that because they were that. I mean, really, they were they were that good. And but that's not what was magic around the table. What was magic around her table is the just the differences in the people who were there, all sharing the same meal, all sharing the same table. Sometimes you had the wealthiest people in the community eating with homeless people. Uh, you had people who were down and out and people who were up and coming. You just had, you had people who were irreligious and didn't know how to act around a pastor to people who were overly religious, trying too hard to impress my granddad. You just had the whole, the whole thing. And it, and it was such an amazing picture to me. I can still feel that, it, that energy and that excitement of being around a table like that. And that is what church is. That, that is what God calls us to be. And as I said, this is a, not just a, a nice little thing. It is, is a spiritual discipline that God is preparing a table and there's a seat with your name on it. There's a seat with everybody's name on it. And we all come to the table the same way. It's by God's grace. None of us deserve to be at the table. We are all equal strugglers. The table is for everybody. And because of that, as we're going to see today, any time. A believer, a religious person, a church, any of us, anytime we make the table exclusive or seem exclusive, it absolutely drives God bananas. And if you want to make God angry, all you have to do is treat people or convince people for whatever reason, because of the way they look, because of what their struggle is, because of what they've done or not done or what they do or don't do. All you have to do is try to Make it seem like there are people not welcome at the table, and that will absolutely drive God bananas. And we're going to see a passage today where that happens with one of Jesus' key followers. Last week, we talked about his closest friends. There were like five people. It was really tight. One of them was Peter, one of the disciples. This happens in Peter's life. He loved Peter. Peter was a godly guy, a good guy. And he made a mistake. He made the table feel exclusive with legalism and racism, as we're going to see. And and this is a real challenge to me because and, and, I, and I'm going to throw it out to you, too, because if this can happen to Peter, what he falls into, it can absolutely happen to me. And, you know, maybe you're way better than me, but it can happen to you, too. And, and actually, if we're not careful, it's already happening. And so today, as we look at this passage, let's just ask God really quick, say, God, I, I need you to speak into my heart. I need you to speak into my life, uh, into my family's life. Because I want to capture your heart on this. So here's what here's the deal with Peter. So Peter, like I said, was an amazing guy. He was one of the disciples and he, like all the disciples of Jesus, grew up um, in a he, you know, as a Jewish person in a Jewish home, looking forward to the Messiah that would come one day, realizes that's Jesus, the savior of the world. That's what Messiah means. And and uh, and so he would have been taught as a as a good religious person. That they were God's chosen people through whom the Savior of the world would come. Now, God had told them in the Old Testament, look, I didn't choose you because you're special. In fact, you're not. You're like unspecial. Like there are nations that are big and impressive. You're not it. I chose you because that's what I, the way I like to do things. But I chose you to be a light to the nations, meaning they were there not for themselves, but for the other races, the other nations. What the Jewish people called the Gentiles, all the other races, all the other nations, they were to be a light to the Gentiles. Chosen to do that. They they picked up that they were chosen, but kind of missed the for the nations part. 
And it is nice to be chosen when you're chosen for a team, when you're chosen for a job, you think, huh, they picked me. Right. I mean, we all kind of experience that. It's always kind of cool to be chosen. And then you have the unchosen. But I'm chosen. I'm special. Well, they saw themselves as special because they were God's chosen people. And so they looked down their nose at the other nations. They looked down their nose at the other races. They looked down their nose at the Gentiles. Not only for that reason, but also for religious reasons, because they had the Old Testament law. And the religious leaders, by the time Jesus came and added all these other commands, hundreds of them, to what it meant to be holy and spiritual. And it was very legalistic and and it was just over the top. And what they taught was you got to do all these things so you keep yourself spiritually clean. And people who don't do these things are spiritually dirty. And the Gentiles didn't do any of those things. So they were spiritually dirty. And if you hung out with them, if you ate, if you had table fellowship with them, which they would never do, that you would be you would you'd be infected like covid. You would you would catch the unspiritual disease. You would be it's, it was like uh, when I was a kid growing up. I don't know if kids still talk about cooties, but we talked about cooties. Uh, at least boys did. I don't know if girls did or not. But for little boys, when we were on the playground, first, second, third grade, um, I remember cootie shots and we'd have a pen. Right. And you do these. There's even something we'd say. I don't remember what that is. It's been a while since I've been in first grade. But we would, uh, you know, do the cootie shot because we didn't want to get cooties from girls because girls give you cooties. You know that, kids, right? That happens. And uh, it, but it's amazing, right? Because somewhere around fourth, fifth, sixth grade, little boys start realizing, hey, you know what? Girls aren't so bad. I want cooties. You know, but anyway, before that, you don't want cooties, right? Well, for them, the Gentiles uh, had spiritual cooties, right? So you, you would not, you, he would have been taught, you do not, a good person does not have table fellowship with a Gentile, meaning not in the Jewish race. Because you get cooties. Be, okay, so, so when he's chosen by Jesus, Jesus was confusing because he wasn't a legalist. He didn't do all that stuff. And he wasn't a racist. He didn't look down his nose at the nations, at the Gentiles. In fact, he walked them, he walked them into his life and at his table. And he had table fellowship with all the wrong people. In fact, one time uh, in, in the book of Luke, we're told this tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them because they would never do that. But Jesus did. Everybody was welcome at his table. And, and, and even though Jesus taught about it and taught about it, it, it took it, the disciples, I don't think, really got it. And when Jesus gave the mission to the disciples to take the gospel, the message of Jesus to the nations, that God came into this world to make it possible for us to be reconciled to him. uh, What he was dealing with in the early church were a group of legalists and racists. And God has to break that in the church because they were ruining God's table and they were excluding most people from God's table. God has to break it. And he starts with Peter. And there's this great passage in Acts 10. I don't have time to go there this week. Uh, look at Acts 10. It's an amazing story. God breaks the racism and opens Peter's eyes in his legalism to embrace this Gentile and to understand. And he, and he goes a long way really quick. It's amazing and dramatic. And so you think, oh, Peter got it. He's going to do great. And then Peter goes to Antioch. Now, the church started in Jerusalem. So you have a big bunch of Christians in Jerusalem. They're all Jewish Christians because it's in Jerusalem. There's another big city, Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas are the pastors of Antioch that sprung up this mega church, this huge church. 
And it was scary for the Jerusalem church because Antioch was in Syria, not in Israel. And so most of the people there who were coming to know Jesus were Gentiles. They were of the other races, of the other nations. They didn't have all the religious stuff. They didn't do anything right. And you've got this multiracial church of in the leadership and everything of Jews and Gentiles. And they're eating together and fellowshipping together. And what, it's what Jesus would call beautiful, they're scared of because they're still racist and legalists. And Peter, breaking out of that, goes to see the church in Antioch and he loves it. And he's hanging out with these Gentiles and having table fellowship with Gentiles. And by the way, I've got Chick-fil-A and Buffalo Wild Wings in honor of Jesus, because that's his two favorite restaurants. But but they would eat all kinds of stuff, including pork, which Jews didn't do. And Jesus was like, hey, what's the deal? It's just it, don't worry about that. And lobster. And so they're going to red lobster. They're going to red hot and blue and eating ribs. I mean, they're doing all that. Peter's loving it. Until the story that we're going to get to. And the story that we get to is some big shots from the Jerusalem church. Who were very intimidating people. They were, they were like the bigwigs of the Jerusalem church. And again, they're still stuck in racism. Looking down their nose at the Gentiles. Legalism. Looking down their nose at those who don't do it right. And here's what happens. Paul writes about it in Galatians. Paul, again, was one of the pastors of the Antioch church. This multiracial church. When Peter came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles and no longer eat with them because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. What a way to describe a group of people, by the way, the <laughs> circumcision group. Would you want to sign up for that? Um, that's weird, isn't it? And some of your kids don't know what I'm talking about. And maybe I should, parents are like, Jeff, move on. I get that. I remember uh, there was one guy I met that was a youth pastor that got fired because he tried to teach junior hires what circumcision was with a carrot. It was a bad idea. But I didn't say that out loud. I'll move on. It did happen. But, uh, but the circumcision group are just these legalists and these racists. And... And they are not going to associate, right? And, and so Peter caves into them and says, well, of course I don't do that. I don't eat ribs. I don't eat lobster. I don't, you know, I would never do that, right? He caves in. And because of that, because he was such a big deal, the other Jews joined Peter in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And so what does Paul do? He doesn't sit on it. Paul goes right to Peter in a public way. And when it says he opposed him to his face, what that term in the original language of the New Testament means is he got in his face. Nose to nose, chest to chest, toe to toe. Anybody ever gotten in your face, up in your grill? You're like, get out of my face, right? I'm not getting out of you know, that. It's that kind of thing. These two giants of the faith. And Paul gets right in his face, his friend and his, you know, co-leader and all that kind of stuff. And he says... I'm not going to let this happen. This is evil. This is wrong. 2.14, when I saw that they were, they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Remember that phrase. I said to Peter in front of them all, you were a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile, meaning you've been eating all kinds of stuff and hanging and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Now you're trying to be legalistic again. And, and he goes on with his rebuke. But it's an amazing little story to me. It's an ugly story in Peter's life. And Peter does repent. He does change. 
But you wonder why God had to put it in the Bible. Like, I wonder if Peter, when he got to heaven, said, did you have to put all my stuff in the Bible? Like, I get the denial of Jesus thing. I mean, that was a bummer. But, you know, you put that in there. It's a good story. And Jesus reinstated me. And that's cool. But do you have to put in the whole me slipping back into racism and legalism thing? And God did. And why? And I think for two reasons that we've got to pay attention to. The first reason is Peter's negative example. Now, he repented. But Peter's negative example, because what did he do? He did what all human beings will do, and that is we slip into elitism. We start thinking we're pretty special, and we look down our nose at other people. It just happens. It's ugly, it's terrible, it's evil, but it's part of human nature, unfortunately, our sinful human nature. And he started refusing. He, he, he began to close off his life to certain groups of people. Uh, in part, racism Racism says you're not equal to me because of what you look like. Legalism says you're not equal to me because of what you struggle with. You don't struggle the same way I struggle or you struggle with something I don't. And we and, and every group of every generation of Christians has these certain struggles or sin sins or life things or whatever that we just sort of be like, ooh, that's cooties. I mean, my struggle I'm OK with. So I'm vain and I'm greedy and I'm arrogant, but same sex attracted. Yeah. Or whatever it is, right? Every generation has that. And that's offensive to the grace of God. That's why Paul says it's out of line with the truth of the gospel. Because the truth of the gospel is we're all welcome to the table. And our only ticket is God's grace. It's not our works. It's not our performance. And everybody is made in God's image with equal dignity. And everybody, all of us are equal in our struggles what you struggle with, and I struggle, it doesn't matter. We're all strugglers, and there's a seat for everybody. And yet Peter did what, if we're not careful, we'll all do. And we've and we just got to ask ourselves a question. God, am I doing that in some way? With some person or group of people closing off my life to people that you're wanting me to reach out to? As a church, is there any group of people that feels like we're the last place they can go? The negative example of Peter. The other reason is the positive example of Paul. Um, because what does Paul do? Paul gets in his grill. Paul gets in his face. He refuses to tolerate racism. He refuses to tolerate legalism. Why? As we said, as the passage says, because it is out of line with the truth of the gospel. Legalism turns Christianity on its head. Racism turns Christianity on its head. It's not a small issue. Like not too long ago, I heard I've heard, well, I've heard it all. People say, well, you know, racism, bad thing, but it's not really like a Christian concern. It's not really like the concern of the church. It's like we're about the Bible and all that. That's you got to rethink that because racial reconciliation is a big part of why Jesus came to this planet. Uh, Ephesians 2 says it that he that part of what happened at the cross is not just reconciling us to God, but reconciling people to people in the context of Jew Gentile, this race and all the other races. It's it to tear down what divides us, to tear down those dividing walls at the cross and bring reconciliation between the races and to create this new community called church of every time, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every ethnicity who are all unified, di- different, beautifully different, but beautifully one at the same time. And anything, I mean, that, that is not like secondary. <laughs> That's core to what Jesus came to do. He came to reconcile people to him and people to each other. And therefore, uh, there's a phrase right now I love. 
And some people are reacting to it and don't react to it without thinking about it. And that is anti-racism or anti-racist. And, 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 you know, most of my friends here, I, I don't know if you know this, I'm a white guy. Um, I always have been, I, you know, and, uh, um, and I, a lot, I have a lot of friends who are white. And I don't, I don't know any, I mean, I really don't know any, I can't think of any white people that say, you know what, I'm a racist, we're superior, and everybody else is inferior and all that. And so I'll, again, I think we need to be careful about giving ourselves too much credit, but I'll, let's just say I'll give you that. So, okay, we're not a racist, but that doesn't go far enough for gospel people, for Christian people, for Jesus people. Because the gospel isn't just not racist, the gospel is anti-racist. And that phrase in our culture is a good phrase. It's one we should have come up with. Like, because what Paul is doing is anti-racism. What he's doing is, I am not going to tolerate racism, even if it's one of the biggest leaders of the church. And he does it in a public way on purpose. And God puts it in the Bible on purpose because it's not enough just to say, well, I'm not a racist. We are called to be anti-racist, to confront it, to not tolerate it anytime we see it in our hearts and our families in our friendships, in our groups, in our churches, in our community, in, where, in our workplace, to say, we, we, don't, we don't roll that way. We're not just not racist, we're anti-racist. And, and Paul is a beautiful example of that. And what you see happen in the early church, I mean, in some ways you think, man, that's kind of troubling, right? I mean, you know, here they are, God is trying to do this new thing, and, and look what's happening. And, but God was working on them. And the cool thing is they got to a wonderful place. Because from Antioch, this multi-ethnic church where they figured this out, that's where God expands the church to the rest of the world. From Because Jerusalem was still working on it. And he sends them out all over the world, these, and Jews, Gentiles, all these races together in this new community called church. And one of the mysteries of history is how Christianity didn't just survive because the Romans hated Christianity. And persecuted it, but how they took over the Roman world. And there's multiple, a few reasons, but one of the reasons historians realize is that, that Christianity was the first multicultural, multi-ethnic, uh, multi-socioeconomic community. Uh, Rome was ext- extremely stratified. We live in a polarized culture, Rome even more so. Groups did not mix with each other, but in the church they did. The world had never seen that before. It's what Jesus prays for in John 17 when he says, God, when he prays for you and me, like the church, it's the only thing he prayed for in the New Testament. We have him praying for you. He prayed for you when he was on this planet, John 17. And he says, God, I don't pray for the world. I pray for those who will come to believe. That's you and me, if we believe that they, you and me, may be one as you and I are one so that the world will know that you indeed sent me into the world, God in human flesh, to make it possible for us to know him. How would they know the remarkable diversity and unity of the community of faith, of the people of God, of his church? To look at that and say, how could these people be together? They shouldn't be, but they are. And it's that kind of diversity and unity that wins over a, a world. And it's, that's the table uh, that God wants us to experience. A, a way to say that is, is to be a community of difference. Different people who should not be together, but who, but who are together. In any way we ever violate that, there's a violation of everything it's got up to. And obviously we don't want to do that, right? And so what would it look like 
to do life a little bit differently. Well, I'm going to challenge all of us as a church to do something. In fact, if you're part of our church, I've already committed us. So you're committed. Um, and, and it's a concept called the unity table. Um, because, you know, you think, well, how did the early church get there? I think one of the reasons the early church got there is because they made a regular practice of eating meals together with people who were not like them. Because when you have table fellowship with somebody that's not like you, it's easy with people who are like you. And that's what we have right now. We have all these echo chambers. We get our news from the people who are like us. We just hang out with people who are like us. That's our culture. We get everything. And, but when you say, no, I'm not going to live that way, I'm going to pursue people who don't think like me, who don't look like me, who are different than me. And that's what we're called to do. That's the table. And we're going to do life that way. Um, that's what the early church did. Then all of a sudden you realize, wow, they're not as stupid as I thought. Or we have stereotypes that we realize they melt away with relationships. And we have empathy when we hear each other's story. And we're like, really? That's what it's like to be you? I had no idea. And it, it changes everything. That's what the early church did. I think it's the reason they accomplished what they accomplished. I want us to experience the same thing. And so we, we committed to this thing called unity table. And how this happened is, um, you know, after the George Floyd uh, shooting, um, after his murder, we... Uh, is, you know, big deal in our culture, right? And, and a big moment in our culture. And um, I remember right after that calling uh, a good pastor buddy of mine, Conway Edwards, at one community church and uh, here in Plano that's, uh, uh, that's primarily, a, it's a multi-ethnic church, but kind of from a black uh, uh, nucleus, whereas we're a multi-ethnic church with a lot of white people as a nucleus as we're both growing to be more multi-ethnic. And so I know we have the same heart. So I, I called Conway and I said, okay, what are we going to do? And because uh, the church needs to lead out in this. And uh, he said, I know, I know. And so so we did the rally. Here it is. You can see pictures of it. Prayer rally for justice um, against racism. Uh, seven or eight thousand people came out. We thought a few hundred people would come out. It was amazing. It was great. But then we thought, OK, that's great. That's healing. But what are we going to do long term? And what came out of that question was this idea of table fellowship called unity table. Where we would call churches in Collin County, um, and right now there's 60-something churches that have signed on to this. We want 100 churches, and I think we'll get there here even this week. Um, that every fifth Sunday, uh, we will commit to asking people in our church to reach out to somebody who's different than them and pursue table fellowship. Now, we are in a pandemic, <laughs> which is kind of a bummer. And so some people aren't comfortable doing that. Uh, in fact, I asked somebody already to do it. And they're like, nah, not if we're going to do it in person. I'm like, okay, we can do a Zoom thing or something like that. So there's, we got to get creative depending on what our comfort levels are. But to reach out to somebody who's different than you and have a conversation. And that's simple, but it's not easy. It's easier just to hang out with people who are just like us. This is not necessarily a comfortable conversation, but it's guided conversation. So on our website, and there'll be a unity table website, there'll be information about, hey, here's the questions. It's not overly complicated. It's a few questions just to get people sharing their story. And because proximity and relationship builds empathy and breaks down barriers. And that's what we want to do. And, and one thing that's cool is now the cities uh, caught wind of it uh, because they were at this prayer rally that we did. And so the cities of Plano and Frisco and McKinney um, and Prosper and anyway, all these different cities has all, have also proclaimed the fifth Sunday of every month, a unity table, uh, unity table Sunday. And we'll also promote this idea. Do I love church leading out and culture saying that's a good idea. Let's do that. And so I'm, so I'm going to ask us to do that. 
Now, you'll see more information about that. That's the fifth Sunday coming up in a couple weeks. We'll talk about it even next week. But this Thursday night is an event that I want you to be aware of. And it's Unity Table Live. And it's going to be live streamed. Uh, you just go to our, go where you're looking right now. If you go to our website, um, it'll be streamed uh, from our deal. And, uh, and you'll see that. There'll be about 100 churches there doing Unity Table Live. It's going to be a great event. There'll be diverse worship. There'll be prayer. And we'll also illustrate what Unity Table looks like and what Unity Table is all about. Because we believe this simple act is actually really profound. And it's why God asks us to make it a priority. And this is one way to do that. Now, so far, I've really talked about how to avoid making the table of God feel exclusive. And God's up in heaven right now going, you preach it because that's his heart. But I want to talk to those of you who have felt excluded from the table. Because I know a lot of you have or do. It may be because of the way you look. It may be because of the way you act. It may be because things you don't do or things that you do. A lot of times we feel excluded from the table. Maybe you've, maybe you've been around the religious people who don't get what the table is about, which is about grace. And there are people who've made you feel ashamed, like you don't belong. And let me just tell you, that's evil. That's not God. There's a, I don't care who you are, what you've done, whether you did it last night, five minutes ago or 20 years ago. All God has for you is grace. And there is a table, there's a seat at the table with your name on it. And right now it may be empty because you don't feel worthy to come. And let me fill you in. You're not worthy. And neither am I. And neither is anybody. That's the point. It's about grace. It's about all of us who are messed up. And who are strugglers and aren't worthy, but God loves us. And we each have equal dignity made in his image, no matter who we are. And yet we're equal strugglers. And Jesus came to make it possible for us to take our place at the table to remove the guilt of our sin. That's why he died on the cross for the sins of the world, which is you and me. To take the penalty for sin. That for all of us who believe, the Bible says, and receive what he offers as a gift. And we could do, you can do that in your heart right now and say, God, yes. If that's what it means to begin a relationship with you, yes. And God is saying, please, and come take your place at my table. And we're going to learn a song here in a little bit. Hear a song and it'll be a time to pray. And I'll lead us in a time of prayer after the song to do just that. Some of you, maybe at one time you had your seat at the table and then you've walked away. And you feel like, man, I've, I can't just come back. God hates me. He doesn't hate you. Just read the prodigal son. Google it this week for your encouragement. But he's just waiting for you to come back. And so in these moments, we're gonna, the band is going to lead us in a song called To the Table. And it's exactly what this is about. It's just to come and take our seat because there is a seat for you. And as we sing it, let's come to him. And again, this may be beginning a relationship with God saying, yes, God, I want you. It may be coming back. For those of us who've been Christians a long time, it may be say, God, I want, I want to be at that table and, and I want to have your heart for everybody who should be here. And God, break anything in me that needs to be broken, but I just want to come to the table. So the band's going to lead us and then I will, uh, I'll lead us in a prayer.